Chapter 15 of The Boy Scouts of Woodcraft Camp by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Crafty Mike. When Walter parted from Hal at Speckled Brook, he quickened his pace to make up for lost time. Presently he came in sight of the Durant camp. Pat Malone, whose official capacity at the camp was that of chore boy, was on his way to the spring with a couple of empty pails. His usual good-natured grin lighted his face at Walter's approach. "'I'd begun to think you was after forgetting ye had engagement with your friend of the woods,' he called. "'Hello, Pat. Sorry I'm late,' replied Walter, offering to carry one of the pails. Pat waved him aside. "'Sure would you be taking the bread and butter out of the mouth of a poor working man?' he demanded. "'Tis me job for which I draws me pay.' "'And now I've lost me market for fish, "'and I'm thinking I'd best be sure of me stupendous salary.' "'He picked up the pails brimming with the cold spring water "'and started for the rear of the main cabin, "'whence the voice of Cookie could be heard commanding him to hurry "'and heaping anathemas upon him for a lazy, good-for-nothing ne'er-do-well. "'Pat winked. "'Dogs that bark be after having poor teeth,' said he. "'I'd be with you in a minute.' He was as good as his word, and was soon ready to play the host. Walter found the camp similar in arrangement to Woodcraft. It lacked the refinements of the latter, but was snug and comfortable, exactly adapted to the needs of the rough men to whom it was home the greater part of the year. When they had thoroughly inspected the cabin, stable, and shop, Pat suggested that they visit the present cutting. This Walter was most anxious to do, for he had never witnessed actual logging operations. The trail was rough but well built, for upon the character of the trail depends much of the lumberman's success in getting his logs to the water. A poorly built trail means costly waste of time, energy, and strength of man and beast when the time comes for getting the cut down to the driving point. Wherever the trail dipped to low or swampy ground, logs have been laid with their sides touching one another. This is called a corduroy road and is the only practical and effective method of preventing horses and wagons miring in low, swampy ground. Such a trail is rough traveling in dry weather, but when the heavy snows of winter have covered it and have been packed down and ice, it forms an ideal slide for the lumber bobs and their huge loads of logs. The trail gradually led up the lower slopes of Old Scraggy, and some two miles from the camp the boys came upon one of the crews at work. A crash of falling trees, a rasp of saws, the sharp ringing blows of axes biting into hard wood, the shouting of rough voices, and now and then a snatch of rude song proclaimed that the work of destruction was in full blast. The scene was one of intense interest to the city boy, and quite upset his preconceived ideas of how trees are felled. "'Why, I thought they chopped trees down,' he exclaimed. "'Not when they've got a good saw and—' Two good boys for the ends of it,' said Pat. They walked over to where a couple of sawmen were preparing to cut a great pine. There was a fascination in watching the huge cross-cut saw with his double-hand grasp at each end eat its way into the trunk of the great tree, the two men swaying back and forth in perfect rhythm, broken only when it became necessary to drive in the wedges that kept the saw from binding it would eventually send the tree crashing down on the exact spot that they had picked out for it. Soon there came the warning snap of breaking fibers. The giant tree swayed slightly, leaned ever so little, and then, 
as with a shout for all hands to stand clear, the sawmen sprang back. It slowly and majestically swung forward until, gathering speed, it fell with a mighty crash, carrying down several small trees that stood in its path, shivering its upper branches as it struck the earth. It seemed to Walter as if it had hardly struck before the axemen were upon it, their great double-edged axes flashing in the sun as they stripped off branch and stub until an incredibly short time it lay shorn of its glory, a huge bare pole, fit to be the mast of one of the Yankee clippers that were once the pride of the American marine. But no such honor awaited it. Another team of sawyers attacked it at once, cutting it into mill lengths. Then came Jim. Jim, so Pat Parley claimed, was some hoss. Clanking at his heels was a stout chain ending in a sharp, heavy hook. This was driven into one end of the logs, and then, at a word from his master, one could hardly say driver, for there were no reins, the big horse set his neck into his collar and, guided solely by the gee and haw of shouted command, dragged his burden down to the skidway where the logs were piled to await the coming of snow. It was wonderful to see with what intelligence the horse picked his way through the tangled brush, and it was equally wonderful to see the lumberjacks at the skidway catch the great log with their peavies and roll it up to the very top of the huge pile already on the skids. A rough lot, these lumbermen, of many nationalities, English, Irish, Scottish, French Canucks, a half-breed or two, and some who boasted that they were pure Yank, they were rough in looks and rough in speech, ready to fight at the drop of a hat, but warm-hearted, loyal to a fault of their employers, ever ready for work or frolic. Rough indeed, but theirs is a rough life. They took a kindly interest in Walter, explaining the many things he found so strange, and it was with real regret that he finally took the back trail. And it was with something of sadness, too, for he was a true lover of nature, and there was something tragic in the crashing of those great trees and the despoiling of the great forest. But Pat left him little time for thoughts of this kind, producing a bag of the famous cookies of which Walter had once had a sample through the agency of Chip Harley. Pat kept up a running fire of comment on his campmates while they munched the crisp brown wafers. As they sighted the camp, the cook was hanging awash. Pat's eyes twinkled with mischief. Motioning Walter to follow him, he stole him back of the stable. Sure tis myself that that clane forgot to introduce you to the most important number of Durant Camp, he whispered. Stay here till you see some fun. He slipped into the stable, and in a few minutes was back, leaving the door open. Peeping around the corner, Walter saw Crow walk out with the stately step of his tribe. "'Tis Crofty Mike," whispered Pat. The black rascal stood for a minute or two blinking in the sun, and he flew up on the stable roof, where he appeared to have no interest in anything in the world save the proper preening and dressing of his feathers. In the meantime, the cook finished hanging out his wash to dry and turned back to the cabin. Hardly was he inside the door when Crafty Mike spread his wings and without a sound flew over to the clothesline, where he quickly and deftly pulled out every pin, giving each a throw to one side. When the last pin was out and half the wash lay in the ground, he flew swiftly to a tall pine on the far side of the clearing, cawing derisively as he went. It was plain that Cookie knew only too well what the sound of that raucous voice meant, 
With a pot in one hand and a dish towel in the other, he rushed from the cabin, pouring out a perfect flood of vituperation and invective on his black tormentor, while behind the stable Pat fairly hugged himself with glee. Caw! Caw! Pity! Pity! Caw! Caw! shouted Mike, sidling back and forth along a bare limb of the pine, evidently in huge enjoyment of the joke. "'I split his tongue so he talks a little, and Billy is the cook's name,' whispered Pat, noting the look of amazement on Walter's face when he heard the crow speak. "'Caw! Caw! Billy! Billy!' Mike was quite beside himself with enjoyment as he watched the angry cook pick up the fallen clothes which he was too wise to rehang while the black rascal was at liberty. Besides, many of them must be returned to the tub. "'I'll blow your blasted head off, that's what I will!' shouted the cook furiously as he disappeared in the cabin with the last of the wash. In a moment he was out again with a shotgun in his hands. Walter grabbed Pat by one arm. "'You're not going to let him shoot, are you, Pat?' he asked in real alarm. Pat chuckled. "'Don't yees worry about Mike!' he said. "'Tis not for nothing I named him Crafty. He knows a gun as well as I do, and just how far it'll carry.' The cook was now sneaking toward the pine, apparently quite unconscious that he was all the time in plain view of his would-be victim. Mike waited till he was halfway there, then spread his wings. The cook threw up the gun and blazed away with both barrels, though the range was hopelessly long, while Mike's derisive, Billy, Billy, floated back from the shelter of a thick clump of hemlocks beyond. But won't the cook get Mike when he comes back? Walter asked with real concern. Mike won't come back tonight unless I call him, replied Pat. Tis a wise bird he be after being. When I go in, I'll tell Cookie how much the boys will enjoy the joke when they come in. He'll swear a bit, then he'll be after begging me not to say a word about it. I'll promise if he'll promise to leave Mike alone, and that'll be the end of it till next time. It was evident that Pat and Mike knew their man and were wise with the wisdom of experience. Mike is a great bird, continued Pat. He's full of tricks as a dog is of fleas, and a worse thief in three counties. Bad sister, him. He'd steal the smile off your face if it was bright enough and he could pry a loose. He'd follow me to the presence of the saints. I have to shut him up whenever I leave the camp, or, glory be, he'll be tagging along and maybe getting me in all sorts of trouble. But I love the old rascal just the same. At Pat's mention of Mike's thieving proclivities, a startling thought flashed into Walter's mind. Had he at last found the long-lost clue? Pat, he broke in abruptly, did Mike ever follow you to Woodcraft? Pat scratched his head in an effort to remember. "'I couldn't say,' he replied. "'I think likely, for there's few places he hasn't followed me.' "'Would he follow you there now if you'd let him?' asked Walter. "'Sure. I couldn't lose him if he once saw me hitting the trail.' "'Can you call him now?' pursued Walter. "'Sure,' Pat answered promptly. "'Listen, Pat,' said Walter eagerly, and he hurriedly told Pat all about the loss of Mother Miriam's pin, discreetly omitting all reference to the suspicion against Pat himself, so long entertained at the camp. "'The dirty thief!' broke in Pat indignantly. "'Now who could it be, I wonder? None of the boys here would do a trick like that. 
and you say there was no strangers in camp. What has all this got to do with Mike? I'm coming to that, said Walter. Maybe it hasn't anything to do with him. That's what I want to find out. Maybe you don't remember coming into camp on an errand that morning and visiting Dr. Miriam's office, but you did. Now, if Mike had been following you and had seen that pin on the windowsill, would he have been likely to have picked it up and carried it off? As sure as little pigs have curly tails, replied Pat with conviction. Oh, the villain! It's myself that'll wring the black neck out of him with me own hands once we get him on him he exclaimed, a realizing sense of the situation and the position in which he had been placed dawning on him. "'Tis a wonder you didn't arrest me for the thief, and I would not have blamed you at all, at all. Just leave me to get two hands of me on that bird. Sure his heart be as black as his coat. Walter laughed. "'Wait a while, Pat, wait a while,' he said. "'We don't know yet that Mike had anything to do with it. Now, here's my plan.' "'You call Mike so that he can see us start on a trail to Woodcraft. "'Then you go with me until we get almost in sight of the camp. "'I'll leave you there and go ahead. "'I'll get a bright button or something "'and put it on the window sill of Mother Miriam's window "'and then get out of sight. "'Then I'll whistle three times "'and you come along in as if you had an errand at the office. "'Go right by the window and around to the front door where I'll meet you. "'Then we'll watch Mike and see what he does.' "'Walter, me boy, tis a great nut yous have on the two shoulders of yous,' exclaimed Pat admiringly. "'We'll do it.' He put his fingers to his mouth and whistled shrilly. At once there was an answering caw from the distant hemlocks, and Mike appeared winging his way toward them, but with a canny wisdom which had earned him his name, giving the cabin a wide berth. He dropped down to Pat's shoulder at once where he jabbered and crow-talked as if telling Pat all about his joke on the cook, all the time studying Walter with his eyes so bright and sharp as to make the boy almost uncomfortable. Without further delay they started for Woodcraft, the crow riding on Pat's shoulder or occasionally flying a short distance ahead. At the edge of the woods Pat sat down to wait while Walter hurried ahead. Hunting through his ditty-bag he found a bright brass button and hurried over to the office. Fortunately no one was about. Putting the button on the sill, where the pin had been left the morning of its disappearance, he slipped around the front and gave Pat the signal. Pat came at once, but Mike, distrustful of the camp or perhaps plotting mischief, lingered behind. Pat passed the window and joined Walter in front of the office. Then they cautiously peeped around the corner to watch Mike. As soon as he discovered that Pat was out of sight, he quickened his flight and winged his way directly toward the rear of the office. The two boys watching could see him turn his head from side to side as he flew, his bright eyes scanning everything in sight. When he reached a point abreast of and above the window, he made an abrupt half-circle, dropped down to the sill as gently as a shadow, seized the button, then mounting high winged his way in strong, swift flight, as straight as the crow flies, for Durant Camp. "'The black scoundrel!' murmured Pat. "'The black-hearted thief!' It was too late for Walter to think of returning to the lumber camp that afternoon, and he had an engagement the next morning at nine. "'Leave it to me,' said Pat. "'I know every hiding place of the old thief, and if he stole the pin, tis in one of them this very minute. If that robber took the pin, and I mistrust he did, 
"'Tis Pat Malone will have it back here by half after eight tomorrow morning.' After evening mess, Walter called Tug and Chip to one side. "'I've got a clue,' he announced with pardonable excitement. "'What is it? Who is it?' they demanded as one. "'I'll tell you tomorrow morning at half-past eight, replied Walter, and that was all they could get out of him that night. Walter slept but poorly. He was burning with curiosity to know the result of Pat's search, and he was alternately filled with joy at the thought of being able to return the precious pin to Mother Miriam, and torn with the fear that Crafty Mike might have lived up to his name and hidden his prize beyond Pat's reach. By eight o'clock the next morning he could wait no longer and started up the Durant Trail. It was just before he reached Speckle Brook that he heard Pat's shrill whistle, and by the sound of it he knew there was good news. A few minutes later Pat swung into view. Crafty Mike, looking abject and bedraggled, was tucked securely under one arm, while the free hand was jammed in a trouser's pocket. Pat's freckled face stretched into a broad smile as he caught sight of Walter. He drew his hand from his pocket and spread it wide open. There in the palm, side by side, lay Mother Miriam's pin and the brass button which had proved Mike's undoing. Walter sent forth a joyous whoop and did a war dance that was expressive if not dignified. Before going to the big chief, Tug and Chip were taken into confidence and shown the pin and the thief under pledge of secrecy. Then Pat and Walter started for the office. In response to Dr. Miriam's cheery, Come in, the two boys entered. Walter elated and Pat diffident. Walter had carefully prepared a little speech, but in the excitement of the moment it went completely out of his head. He did remember to salute his chief, then he blurted out the news so fast that the words fairly tripped over each other. "'We found Mother Miriam's pen, and we found out who the thief is, and—' "'Wait a minute,' interrupted the doctor, smiling. "'What is this about Mother Miriam's pen?' For answer, Pat extended his hand with the pen and the broad palm. The doctor's face lighted with pleasure as he reached out to take it. "'But the thief?' he said. "'I don't quite understand.' "'There he is, sir.' said Pat, thrusting forward the protesting Mike. The doctor's face was a study as he bade the boys sit down and tell him the whole story. When they had finished, he quietly questioned them until he had drawn from Walter all that he had hitherto kept from Pat. How the latter had been suspected, how he had been sure that Pat was innocent, how he had found the crow's feather caught in the screen, and how this fact had come to his mind as soon as Pat had mentioned Mike's thieving propensities. Upton, I want you and Malone and Mike, too, he added with a whimsical smile, to remain here till I return. He left the room. And a few minutes later Walter was startled to hear the recall sounded. Many of the boys had not yet left camp, and the others within hearing came hastening in. When they had all gathered, the doctor stepped out in front. Some time ago, he began, the recall was sounded to tell you that a thief had been in our midst, and to ask you to give of your services in an effort to regain the pin which had been stolen. It seemed to me that it was quite as important again to sound the recall to tell you all that the pin has been recovered. He paused as a stir ran through the camp of boys, and they broke out in a hearty cheer. And, he continued when the quiet had been restored, a thief taken— and that this happy result has been accomplished by one of your own members. Who that member is I am not going to tell you, 
but I want you to know that I consider that in this whole course of action he has displayed the very highest form of scoutcraft, for he has not only apprehended the thief and recovered the plunder, but what is of vastly more importance, he has removed unjust suspicion from one whose good name not one of you has had real cause to doubt. He then briefly sketched the story of the search for and the finding of the pin no name is being mentioned, and concluded by bringing forth the pin and crafty Mike for all to see. Sitting in the office, Walter and Pat had heard every word, and Walter's face glowed with pleasure at the doctor's praise. He felt that his reward had been great indeed, and when the doctor concluded by saying that fifty points would be credited to the Delawares, in recognition of his work, his joy was complete, an hour later, Pat Malone paused on the trail to Durant Camp to look with shining eyes at the gold piece in his hand. Caw! said Crafty Mike, looking down from his shoulder with greedy eyes. Shut up for a black-hearted thief, growled Pat. Sure tis me ruin and me fortune that ye's are like to be. End of chapter 15